Just a little reminder from the Women's Weekend, I guess. He, he will hold me fast, so thank you for that reminder. That's good. The ladies had a great weekend here. It was a retreat, but it was an in-house retreat, um, and so they had a wonderful time and, um, and fun with the, their speaker, Kay Gabrish, who's from Dallas, and I found out her pastor was a classmate of mine in seminary, and so that was fun to, to catch up with her some. We, me and you, we Americans, and probably just we as humans, love success. And we fear failure. We don't like that. It's why you had the gasp come out of your mouth when Michaela Schifrin falls five gates down the slope in the Olympics and is disqualified. (gasps) Oh no, she worked so hard for that. We love success, right? I'm not just making that up. That's true, I think. Maybe to varying degrees. Some of you may love it more than others, and we fear failure, and some of you may fear failure more than others. But that's part of the reality in which we live and find ourselves. In this study of Acts, what we're doing is seeing how Luke is documenting the adventures of Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey And he is showing, actually, some of their successes and some of their apparent failures. And there's, you know, a lot of them in both directions. Lots of adventures. Some crazy things happen in chapters 13 and 14. We looked at part of chapter 13 last week. Today we'll look at chapter 14 in a moment. I suspect as we look at it and we read it, I suspect that the text is going to to draw you in and push you away. I suspect it's going to draw you in and you're going to go, whoa, look at the courage of Paul. And that is not me. Run away. I suspect that will happen. Because what we also tend to do as people, as humans, is we avoid pain at all costs and we pursue pleasure at great costs. And when hardship and opposition come our way, in whatever form they do, one of the things that you probably start to wonder is, oh, has God forgotten about me? Is this really part of God's plans? Or are these some kind of obstacles that that aren't supposed to be, that are in the way of what God is trying to do? But what if those moments of hardship, what if those moments of fear and those moments of opposition or even success, what if those moments are not obstacles to God's plans but opportunities in which he is giving you the ability to be stripped, to be stripped away of the things of self-sufficiency, to be stripped away of self-pleasure, to help us to follow Jesus with faith. What if these moments are opportunities to receive God's redeeming grace? And what if they're moments to extend God's grace? Well, follow along with me. Let's see some of the crazy in this story in Acts chapter 14. We're going to read the first 23 verses. Here's the word of God. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. 
who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with Jews and others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and went to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word. The word of God stands forever. It is not like the flowers of the field which fade and disappear. So would you use it to touch our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What I am proposing to you today is this, what I think comes from this text, and what I'm proposing to you is that if you have been a recipient of God's redeeming grace, then you are also, you must also be an instrument of that grace. Okay, I want to look at that in three ways. Being an instrument of God's grace requires resistance. Being an instrument of God's grace requires resistance. So how does it require resistance? It requires resistance to the fear of opposition. And we saw this right away in verse 2, where they, they were against them, and um, they started poisoning other people's minds. And I'm imagining Paul and Barnabas are going, this feels a lot like failure. What's going on? They're not listening to us. Poisoning minds against people, that feels like cancel culture to me. Plotting to kill, that's serious hatred. Creating a riot to come out and stone them is the height of a polarized culture. And you wonder, is the Bible relevant? This is all happening in the last few years. Because it's human behavior. And when Paul goes into places, he sees similar kinds of behavior. 
What do they do, though, when they face it? Look at verse 3, where we note that he says that, um, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. There's fear of opposition, potentially. There's definitely opposition, and they're like, we're going to spend some time here. And so they stay there for a while, considerable time, whatever that means, and they're there for a while, and they're continuing to speak unashamedly and without fear in the name of Jesus. Why do they do that? Because there's new converts, there's new followers there that need to be grounded in their faith so they're not easily swayed by the opposition that will try to dissuade them and turn them away from Jesus. And they're like, you must be grounded in this faith. And so they, in the faith, so they stay there. I mean, that's impressive to me that they do that. I think the truth is that for us, for me, is that you and I, we like to be recipients of God's redeeming grace. Oh, man, tell me about that grace. Give me some of that love. I need that. Let that shower over me. And that is a good thing, a fantastic thing, a life-changing thing. But then when we're asked to be instruments of that grace, extending it to others, we're like, ah, that seems like that's going to be difficult. Uh, There might be a little bit of opposition involved in that. I don't know if I want to do that. Right? I mean, when, when that starts happening, we're just like, ooh, I don't know. Let me just plan my next vacation instead, because that'll be much more fun. Vacations are great. They're needed. They're restful. I want vacations, right? I use vacations. We all should. Life should be fun and enjoyable at times. I'm not against that. What I think we are longing for when we want that lack of pain, when we want that lack of opposition, when we want that fun and that joy and that rest, what we're longing for is paradise restored. What we're longing for is heaven. That's not a bad thing. I don't want you to think that's bad. It's a good thing. But it's a not yet thing. It's going to be a future thing. In the meantime, we're here on earth, and here there are hardships that come our way. And so the challenge, I think, is when we face hardship and opposition, the challenge is not to fear that but to ask God how you can be an instrument of his grace in the midst of it. The other way we have to resist as an instrument of God's grace is we have to have a resistance to the fame of glorification. What do I mean by this? This is in verses 11 and 12. Why don't we put those verses on the screen, please? I think I have a slide for that. So it says, when the crowd saw what, this is when they've gone under the next city, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, the gods have come down! Zeus and Hermes, right? And then the priest shows up with bulls. He's getting ready to sacrifice them. I'm like, you guys are awesome. And they might be thinking, yeah, that's right. We're awesome. We deserve a little of this because you should have seen what happened the last time we got ran out of. They wanted to stone us. Like, give me some sacrifice. Come on. Right? I mean, that's probably what I would have thought. They may not be thinking that. The text does not say they thought that. But, man, I'm just wondering, what is the emotions like of going from, hey, one town to the next? Wow, very different. It feels like respect. It feels like they're revered, that they're honored, like success, like fame. As, As a kid who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, I just imagine right here, um, C-3PO in, in, in the Ewoks on the moon of Endor, when the Ewoks, when they land there and they're all stuck and the Ewoks surround them all. And you can go back and look this up, you young kids. Um, and you can see what happens. And 
they're all afraid in the Ewoks, these like teddy bear-like creatures that are like knee-high to this piece of wheat right here. They're like got spears pointed at him and Han Solo's got his laser out and everything and Luke's like, put it away, put it away. And C-3PO uh, sits up and they see him and like, oh, and they start bowing down to him. And Han says, what are they saying? He says, they think I'm a god. And he says, well, then use your godlike powers and get us out of here. And C-3PO says, and I don't know why George Lucas wrote this this way, but this is what he says. He says, um, it is against my programming to impersonate a deity. Paul and Barnabas are saying, it's against humanity to impersonate a deity. We are not God. Do not offer these sacrifices to us. And so in reality, like if I'm going to say Paul and Barnabas here, they come out and they see people and they're saying the gods and they're calling on the Greek names of gods and they're sacrificing. They're probably not at all like sacrifice that to us. Yes, they're really not. I mean, it's pretty clear and obvious. Like, oh, you're bringing different gods to come and they're pretty clearly and obviously saying, as we read the text, you can see, no, stop, friends, what are you doing? They don't want that. I guess the reason my mind goes there and wonder, well, would they have wanted it some is because, while in that context, maybe not, but there's a much more subtle form of glorification that happens regularly in our culture that I can succumb to, that you can succumb to, right? And that's the fame of celebrity status. I mean, it's who you follow on your social media accounts. It's who you look to, the music you listen to, the entertainers, the sports figures, the icons of society, right? These celebrities, even pastors, celebrity pastors, right? I mean, that's a whole thing. Who would have thought? They're celebrity pastors. I mean, one of the things that was very instructive to listen to was a a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which explained Mars Hill Church in Seattle and kind of what happened there, and how fame and power can go to your head. And it's not just celebrity pastors either. It's pastors like me. I was recently asked what one about my sabbatical. I had a sabbatical in 2016. I was very thankful for that. And some others had gone on sabbatical, other pastors I know. And they said, what was hard about your sabbatical? And my answer to them was, the church grew while I was gone. You see, what does that tell you about my heart? Right? I'm competitive. I'm an Enneagram 3. I love success and winning with style. I love all of that. I don't like to fail. I hate failure. Right? And so when I'm gone and the church is doing well, the question I start asking is, maybe I'm not as important as I thought. Maybe there really is a God who's bigger than me and is in control of his church. I should believe that. I do believe it here, but how you act right reveals kind of what you're tempted toward. Jesus told his disciples, he sent them out, not just the 12, he sent out 72. This is in Luke chapter 10, I believe it is. He sends out disciples to go around the surrounding countryside and to cast out demons, to spread the good news about Jesus being here. And they do that and they come back. And they are ecstatic. They're like, Jesus, Jesus, you won't believe it. We cast out demons and like healed people. And people listen to the message and they believe this is awesome. And Jesus' words to them are, 
do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because of that seduction of glorification, of fame, of success. Jesus gives them a reminder of redeeming grace, which shifts one's focus to being an instrument of grace rather than an instrument of power and fame. It's an important thing that we need to remember, that pastors need to remember, but you need to remember too. So we need to be instruments of God's grace, which requires resistance. But let me talk about another aspect of it. Being instruments of God's grace also requires persistence. How does it require persistence? It requires persistence in spreading the good news of God's grace through Jesus. I mean, when we read that, it was in verse 1, 7, 9, 15, 21. Everywhere they go, they spread the news and people believe. They spread the news, they spread the news. They don't stop doing that. They persist in spreading the news about the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Sometimes they moved on to the next place. They exercised wisdom. Will you put that slide up for verse 6 and 20 and notice this here? In verse 6, this is after they become aware of the threats where people are plotting to kill them, right? They find out about it and they're like, all right, now remember verse 3, they stayed there for a considerable time. And they're like, we're enduring, we're enduring. And now like apparently the threat's getting real and like we're about to die. And I don't know that they do it out of fear, but in wisdom they say, all right, let's move on for a while. We've been here a while. Let's move on. And they do. And they go on to the next city. Okay? And in verse 20, they do the same thing. They go, they, they're there for a time, they, and they left, and they, uh, they go on to the next city. And this is actually the one where they did get stoned, or where Paul got stoned. After he got stoned, the disciples gather them around him. He goes back into the city for the night, presumably. The disciples take care of him. He maybe miraculously recovers, somehow recovers enough to travel the next day, and he leaves. So sometimes persistence does mean, does mean moving on from place to place. Okay? It doesn't do it out of immediate fear because Paul endured a lot of fear and a lot of opposition stayed and took it. But it, sometimes it does mean moving on from place to place. I also want you to notice the places they went. Will you put ver- that verse 6 slide back up for a second? Notice where he went. This, this was interesting as I read this. Um, they found out about it and they fled to the Lyacon cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country. Where'd they go? Leave that up there. Where'd they go? Lystra and Derby, yeah. Where'd they go? What are the two places that are said? They start with C's. To the cities and to the surrounding country. They go to urban areas and they go to rural areas. They go everywhere, right? That's why we're planting churches, yes, in suburban and urban areas and in rural areas. Because it's important that the gospel goes to all people everywhere. I think that's fascinating. Not only that, but they go to religious people and irreligious people, right? And part of it, it said they went as their habit was to go to the synagogue. You can take that slide down now, thank you. They go into the synagogue, right? And the synagogue is obviously the place where Jewish people gather for religious services. But when they're going into the other city and they see the lame man there begging, 
and the people come and call out the gods, they're probably in the marketplace. It doesn't say that they're in the synagogue. They're probably in the marketplace. That's why there's so many people, Greek-speaking people around, and why they gather and say the gods have come. It would be common for beggars to either beg at a religious site or in the marketplace because that's where everything happened. People went to shop, and just like here, if you go to a shopping center or whatever, you might see somebody asking for money, right? And that's where he runs into the lame man. Religious places, commercial places. They go everywhere with the gospel. Wherever people are gathering to listen. Where is that in our society today? Oh, yeah, social media. Yeah, sort of. I don't know if people listen there. They say a lot. It might be a place you can engage, but, but it's not the best platform. Coffee shops, probably. Breweries and wineries, for sure. Colleges, hospitals, prisons, kids' sporting events, dance events, drama events. Parents are always sitting on the sideline chatting it up. You got like an hour and a half there, and you're like, okay. I mean, you cheer, but then you're like, okay, there's a break for three more innings until he's up to bat again or whatever. And like, right, like, okay, now you're chatting it up. And all these opportunities to gather wherever society is and to listen and to talk. Because you persist in being an instrument of grace. Sometimes they did move on from place to place. Sometimes in that moving on, it was a going back. Put verse 21 up if you would, please. I want you to notice this. It says that they preached the gospel in that city. because That was the previous city that they're in, right? They won a large number of disciples. And then they returned. Oh, good, let's go back. Where are they returning to? Lystra. Iconium and Antioch. What happened there? That's where they wanted to kill us. Let's go back. Fantastic idea. Wait, what? Why? Will you put the map up? There's a map here. This is a map from an ESV study Bible that shows the missionary journeys. And you probably can't see it super clearly, but you could look for one online or um, in your Bible even. And what you'll see is to the top right quadrant of this, you'll see Antioch, and there's a red dot there. That's where they started. That's the Antioch in Syria, right? And that's where the, they were first called Christians. We saw that a couple chapters ago, and where the, the people sent out Paul and Barnabas on this first journey. And so they go and they follow that dotted line, the northernmost, well, in the ocean between Cyprus and the coast there. They follow that dotted line. Uh, down to Cyprus. They go to Cyprus, right? And then they go from Cyprus across there up to Pisidian Antioch in Asia Minor. And from there, they go to Lystra and Derby. Now, you can see where Derby is. And you see Tarsus that's right near that. Tarsus is Saul's hometown. I don't know if he's hated there or loved, but I wonder, why don't you go from Derby to Tarsus? Like, that's home. Then you can just cross through the Roman gates there and you're right back at Antioch. Of course, you do have to walk, so... Maybe they just like boat travel and they want to sail back. But that's not what the text indicates. The text tells us why they go back and they return to the cities where they were persecuted, where they faced opposition, where they tried to kill them. And the text tells us that they go back because they were to spread the word there to encourage them and then strengthen them in their faith. And we'll see some more of that in just a moment. It reminds me of missionaries in the mid-1900s, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, um, and several others that were killed in Ecuadorian jungle by a headhunting tribe they were trying to reach. Nate Saint uh, was one of them, and his son Steve 
lost his dad at the hands of the Wyudani tribe and Minkaye. Minkaye was the man who killed his father and then ended up becoming a Christian and raising Steve as a son. Because the family stayed there after the missionaries died to take the gospel to the people. They persisted in it. And virtually the whole village was converted. It's been made into a motion picture called End of the Spear. It's probably 15 years old or more. Um, and, but you could watch that if you want, and it'll tell you more about it. But that's the power of persistent grace. And so there must be persistence in spreading the gospel, but there also needs to be persistence in contextualizing the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? That's a fancy way of saying, know your audience. It's a fancy way of saying, know your audience and explain in such a way that they understand the message. This is the difficult task of preachers, trying to communicate to everybody and make sure that as best I can, I explain things so that everybody gets it. Um, But contextualization is important, and I want to show you how Paul himself does that. Now, in chapter 13, I'm not going to read through this, but you can look, chapter 13, verse 15 and following. If you're to flip there in your Bible and you'll scan, you'll just see Paul's sermon, and you'll notice he tells lots of Old Testament stories. Talks about Abraham and talks about lots of the Old Testament things that are going on. Why? Because he's in a synagogue. They understand it. They read it all the time, and he says, yes, and so the fathers and the prophets all point to the one who is to come. And he shares the gospel with them that way. But here in chapter 14, which we read today, in verse 8 and following, the message at Lystra in the market where there's a Greek crowd, he did not assume Old Testament knowledge. He didn't talk anything about the Old Testament. In fact, they said, here's the gods come to us. And he says, oh, you believe in the gods too. Let me tell you about the God, the living God. That's what he says. He basically starts and says, okay, let me tell you about the living God who made the sky, the land, and the sea, and everything in it. He has let the nations go their own way and do their own thing for some time, but he won't leave it that way forever. And he's left you reminders, it says, of his goodness and kindness by giving you rain for your crops and seasons so you can have joy in life. This is the living God that we know and we can tell you about. You see how that was different? He contextualized the gospel. Didn't change the truth, but addressed it to the audience that was there. That's an important thing that we do, and it's a thing that's really difficult to do. And actually, in Christian circles, is coming under a lot of fire lately. There's a lot of expressed differences about that, big debates about how to stand for truth and to contextualize. And I think we need to be, as Christians, very kind and gentle listening to one another. Well, rather than adopting a posture that is me versus you, which in my opinion is saying that even though we both believe in Christ as a Savior and the only way to heaven— that it's me versus you, and we're mirroring the polarization of our culture. We have so blinded ourselves that we become like our culture. We're doing the same thing to Christians. And I think we have to think long and hard about that. And say, where's the unity that Christians are supposed to have? Now, there has to be unity around truth, for sure. But how we practice that and what that looks like is important. Being an instrument of God's grace requires resistance, it requires persistence, and finally I want to tell you that being an instrument of God's grace requires, results, sorry, results in existence. You're like, huh? Yeah, I stretched it. It results in the existence of new Christians, new leaders, and new churches. And we saw this in the text. Notice this. The existence of new Christians, they become disciples, they're followers of Jesus, 
And it, they're, they're followers of Jesus whether life is good or tough. Will you put verse 22 on the screen for me? When Paul is explaining this to the people and they're going back through these places, he says they go there to strengthen those disciples. This is why they return to the lion's den because they're going there to encourage them to remain true to the faith. And he says we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying this life here on this earth right now is not free of opposition. It's not all vacation time, right? Heaven is very different, where there's no more sin, war, sorrow, or tears. But right now, we live in places of conflict, in places where people will want to cancel you, in places where people will oppose you. And he's saying, just know that. Expect that as you follow Jesus. It doesn't mean life suddenly gets easy. I mean, Brian preached a great sermon a few weeks ago talking about the sovereignty of God and life and all the things he's gone through in life. Right? It doesn't mean that everything suddenly turns to Disneyland. What Paul is saying is, it's going to be hard. But not impossible. And in fact, you will be better equipped because you will have the Spirit of God in you. And you will have a faith that is greater than others that strengthens and grounds you. So I don't want you to hear that statement and saying, you must go through hardship to enter the kingdom of God, and you think, man, I went through hardship and I failed. I didn't do what was right. I didn't follow God. I did the wrong thing. Yeah, you probably did. I have too. And I want you to remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33, when he was talking to his disciples, and he said, I'm not saying you'll have peace in this world. You will have trouble in this world, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, you're mine. It's my redeeming grace that holds you, that secures you, and that sustains you. But just know that though that's true, there will be hardship in life. And remember this to keep you going through it. And then be my instrument of grace as you go. It also produces the existence of new leaders. Look at verse 23. Will you put that uh, slide on the screen for us, please? Verse 23 says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in, the, in, the, in each church with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord in whom they'd put their trust. They appointed elders, new leaders, right? And it's not just the elders. We know that one of the new leaders that came out of Lystra, where the crowd um, wanted to stone Paul, okay? They didn't do it in Lystra. They had to chase him all the way to Derby to do it. But anyways, they, they, um, they, stone, they want to stone him, right? Okay? In Lystra, one of the people that come out of there is this little guy named Timothy. You can flip over to Acts chapter 16, 1 and see that. And Paul talks to him about how you know what happened in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Timothy, remember? Timothy probably becomes a Christian because of this. And then he's raised and becomes a leader in the church. And Paul, when he goes back, finds Timothy and he says, okay, I want you to come with me on the next journey. I'm going to train you. He's training new leaders. He brings them along. The church always has to be in the, in the job of developing and investing in new leaders. New teachers. New teachers for Sunday school. Lauren might ask for some of that. She might need help with children's worship. We're always in, in, involved in investing in, in new leadership. New ministry team leaders. New community group leaders. New deacons. New elders. New pastors. Like Jake's doing seminary, right? To pursue ordination. The church is always about developing new leaders. Not just leaders here, leaders that go out from here. Leaders that will go with the church with, with New Creation Presbyterian. They worship, they're here with us today. They worship with us on the second Sunday of the month. Right? They're, gonna, they're starting a church in Chester. 
right? You should be asking, if you live in the Chester area, should I go with them? You should pray about that. Joel, Joel, wave your hand. Joel's over there. If you want to talk to him, talk to him right after the service today. He's pastoring it. Farmville. We've got people in Farmville. They're looking to hire a church planter there, right? They're trying to hire somebody right now. And Amelia, we're looking to start one in Amelia. God may be calling you, if you live in any of these areas, to, to go, to at least have a conversation. Because what happens is we see the existence of new churches. Elders are appointed because they're appointed to oversee the local church. So there's a local church that's established. It's why we're deeply committed to church planting. And I know, I know that, um, and I thank you for your honesty as we do surveys and how do you feel about us planting churches and stuff. I know that it's not like everybody's most favorite thing here at Spring Run, right? I mean, some of you just have other needs and you're like, I, I think this is a big thing. I get that. That's okay. I know it's not everybody's most favorite thing, but I, want you, I do want you to see that that if people didn't plant churches, Spring Run would not exist. There would be no Spring Run. There would be no church in Derby, Lystra. There would be no Timothy. Right? It happens, and ministry happens, because the gospel goes forward and churches are started. People are converted and churches are started. And so we focus on God's redeeming grace. And I want you to do that so that it fills your life, that you become an instrument of grace. Maybe... If I were to give you a, an example of that, it might be like a sponge, right? If you take a big sponge and you plunge it into a bucket of water and you soak up all that water and then you hold it out, what does it start doing? It starts just dripping the water, right? If you're the recipient of God's grace, be an instrument and wring out that grace to others. There's a, um, a lot of fear in our culture, fear of opposition, a lot of fame-seeking, inside and outside the church. When we focus on those things, on fear of failure and fame and success, we often miss the opportunity to be an instrument of grace. There's a show that I've watched that is not a show for everybody. I'm not recommending it for everybody. Um, called Ted Lasso. I talked about it once before. It's become popular. I think one of the reasons it's become popular is because it is... Um, Living in the midst of a society that is so polarized, in an outrage kind of culture, one of the drawing things about this show and this character, Ted Lasso, is that he just shows so much kindness to everybody that he sees. And I think that's one of the things that draws people into it. And the storyline is that Ted is an American football coach um, who has been hired as the manager of a London soccer club, an English football club. The owner of the team, Rebecca... Um, singular goal is to destroy the team as tragically as she possibly can in order to spite her husband who left her. And so she sabotages Ted along the way in all kinds of ways. But in a powerful moment in one scene, she goes, leaves her office, goes down to his office, like next to the equipment room, and walks in and says, Ted, I have something to confess. And she just confesses it all and just dumps it out. I've been at your heels. I've tried to undermine you. I've been horribly mean. Um, I've done all kinds of things. And Ted's sitting at his desk, and on his face is this look of shock, shaking his head like, no, I can't believe it. And she says, if you want to quit or call the press, I'll understand. And he stands up from his desk, and he walks up to her tall, and he says, I forgive you. She's like, what? You what? Why would you do that? And he goes on to explain and says, 
um, words of acknowledging in his own life and the failures that he's had and some hard and crazy things that have happened in his life. And he says, life's hard. Life's hard. I know that. I forgive you. And she says, um, and he says, you and me, we're okay. And he puts out his hand to shake her hand, and she's like, doesn't know what to do. She's so overcome at being forgiven that she falls on his neck and hugs him and just squeezes him and says, oh, Ted. Because she's been forgiven by somebody who was, at least in human terms, acting as an instrument of grace. As followers of Jesus, what we do is we don't just forgive because we know we have our own failures, though we certainly do. We forgive because we know that Jesus has forgiven us. That he has said when we've confessed everything, said, I forgive you, and we just fall on his neck, and he says, I love you. And that redeeming grace then moves us to be instruments of grace. To love others, to forgive others, to be persistent in spreading the gospel. That others might know Jesus. Will you be an instrument of grace? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help each of us to be instruments of your grace as we have been, uh, as we have received your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you will do that in our lives, that you will work in us in ways that we don't expect or would not have previously imagined, and that you would shape us and mold us so that we would be very willing and eager to love others well, even in the face of opposition, that we would persist in our faith in sharing with others and sending out missionaries and being missionaries right where we are. Lord, will you do that work? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As instruments of grace, one of the things God says is, I've given you everything you have and I want you to give back to me so that that becomes an instrument in which the ministry of the church and the mission of the church can go forward. So when we ask for an offering, that's what we're doing. We're saying, God's been so gracious to you. Generously respond with that and give to the ministry and work of the church.